this, narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are casually critical. Welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I'm James Newton, your co-host. In case you were wondering, this review, for those of you who are huge Minions 2 Rise of Gru fans, is going to be spoiler-free up until we acknowledge it to be. Uh, So anything that we say right now for maybe the next 10 or 15 minutes will not include any spoilers. Uh, so don't worry. Don't worry. So, Daniel, Minions 2 Rise of Gru, Mm. it's a movie. It exists. We both saw it by ourselves in a movie theater. Well, at least I did. I don't know. Did you go by yourself? I did. Yeah, I think this might be the saddest moment in my entire life. Uh, not that it was a bad, terrible, horrible movie, but it was just sad. Um, I sat behind a, uh, a Facebook grandma and her, uh, four-year-old grandson and they both thought it was really funny. That's what all, those are my opening remarks. There's nothing more lonely than feeling differently about a crowd of moviegoers around you as you sit in a theater. Um, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Thanks. So I'm curious to know, James, just on the air, I've seen the first Minions movie and Rise of Gru. Where do you stand in terms of your Minions lore knowledge? I'll have to crack open my uh, lengthy codex of fan fiction that I have written here because uh, it's always hard to please keep the, don't. It's hard to keep the the head canon separate from the uh, the actual canon that Universal Pictures puts out, and also from the fan wiki that uh, I frequent. So um, let me look around here. Do 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 do. Yeah, I've seen the first two Despicable Me movies. Uh, I never saw the original Minions movie. Uh, so this one, I just came in cold, and I gotta say, I don't feel like I missed much. Did I miss much, Daniel? Uh, absolutely not. You did not. Okay. I, I've i seen the first two Despicable Me movies. I saw half of three, and I stopped watching. I was with my brother. We were actually at a huge family gathering. Me, my brother, and some of the much younger cousins of ours were watching it, and um, something happened. I think the kids are getting bored or restless. And so they just kind of turned it off. It wasn't kind of like the lights are off. We're all watching the screen. It was kind of like, it was just playing. My brother and I were like, well, let's see if this is any good. And when the adults turned it off, my brother and I weren't exactly complaining. We, we actually were thinking of better things to do with our lives. Uh, as the more educated of us in terms of minions, can I say educated? I feel like that's too strong of a word. No, certainly. Certainly. You are a superior life form, having consumed more minions than me. Unless if you count Facebook memes of minions Mm. saying like, well, I'm a little crazy sometimes with a minion sticking its tongue out. In that case, (laughs) I would I would say I'm the intellectual superior. I I will say as the more burdened of us when it comes to the (laughs) the minions franchise, I got to be honest with you. This is not a bad movie in the typical sense. The first Minions movie, when it came to story, when it came to execution, 
The first Minions movie is abysmally lazy in terms of it meanders, it never goes anywhere, and I think this movie has some more threads, even if those threads aren't necessarily continuous all the time. But this movie is interesting because it's a different kind of bad. When I say this is a bad movie, it's bad not because it's technically deficient, and it's not bad because the story is abysmal. It's bad because this movie, as best as I will try to describe it, is so blasé. It is so mediocre. This movie, when you look back a year from now, five years from now, it's not going to make any of the top 10 best movies of 2022. It's not going to be mentioned in the 2010s movie list things. It's not even going to be mentioned in the top 10 worst movies of 2022. This is so slap in the middle it, it's so stuck in the middle it's so unnotable if i had to describe this movie it, i would describe it as uh this movie is so pandery it tries to rope in all these elements at once and it tries to bring everyone together and when everyone's crowded into that auditorium and minions 2 gets on a podium it has nothing to say it just kind of talks it filibusters for an hour and barely an hour and a half, and then it's done. And even then, even then, that hour and a half, there's there's some fillers in there. There's some places where it's like, okay, he, you know, Minions 2, he kind of goes on a couple tangents that don't really matter. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that speech probably could have been like 50 minutes long, maybe, and it would have been fine. Yeah. And I think the crowd would have been pleased, at least the crowd that actually wanted to be there. Uh, without the uh, the extra, you know, 40 minutes of bunk. Yeah, there was a review I was listening to, or I wasn't listening to it. I was listening to it with my eyes. I was reading it. Uh, it's, huh. from, it's from IndieWire.com, and this lady, I'm going to call her out, Kate Erbland, or Erbland? I, I think I'm going to go with Erbland. I feel like that's more, uh, I, I don't know. It, feels it sounds good. cooler. Thank yeah, I thank hope you. your name doesn't have, have the sound <laughs> bland in it. That would make me sad. If you're listening to this, Kate, I'm so sorry. Uh, she describes Minions 2 as candy-colored. And I think that that is the best way to describe this. When I walk out of a movie with the average moviegoer, family, friends, people I care about, except for this one instance, and they mention to me, oh, like I thought that was fun. I, it was an entertaining film. It doesn't need to be cerebral. It's just, it's fun. This movie is the apex of that. Yeah. It's candy colored. It's flashy. It's got all sorts of jokes in it that might make the kids laugh, might make the adults chuckle a little bit, might get the kids that grew up in the 70s all like, ah, I know what that's about. I remember that. But at the end of the day, it's candy. Tastes good in the moment. When you've had a lot of it, you get sick of it and move on. But you're always like, eh, candy's sweet. Candy's fine. It's all the same candy. And as a writer, and for us, for you and me, James, as people that care about story, it pains for me to see a movie like this in theaters, especially with the massive financial success and projected success that this film has. It discourages me. And that's why I think this is a bad movie. Huh. I, I think this movie won't even be listed under animated movies of 2022. Mm. Uh, I think there's a lot of, a lot of great things going on with other companies right now. A lot of irons in the fire. Um, I've I watched this movie probably three weeks ago, uh, prior to recording this, and I don't remember much of it. 
Mm. Uh, a lot of the details. I don't remember names of characters. I don't remember some of the plot points. Um, I think it was just kind of like a, it was like a dream I had the other night. And like every <laughs> once in a while, I'll see something. I'll be like, oh, a banana. And I'll be like, oh yeah, that scene in that movie. Oh, it's gone. Okay. Um, <laughs> PTSD so, flashbacks. Yeah, I guess sort of in a way, but this movie didn't traumatize me. It didn't annoy the crap out of me either. Mm. Um, it's, it's just there. It's there. And it's, it's got a couple things going for it. I mean, like you said, it, 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 it throws a bunch of stuff at the wall and sees if it sticks and some of it sticks for some audiences. So like, yeah, they at least like embrace the seventies thing and like try to make that as goofy as possible. And like, I was going to say making Gru a child was, was an interesting move, but honestly they didn't have a choice first of all. And second of all, he's not any different in any way. Yeah. Um, his story arc is just different because of how young he is. Um, but I just feel kind of silly just talking about it in this way, even because I just don't know. I don't know if there's anything I can really add because this, this movie is partially because I can't remember parts of it, but another <laughs> part of it is just that it came and it went and it existed. And I feel like the low lights weren't very low and the highlights weren't very high. And as a result, I just feel like I woke up from a dream. I guess to bookend mm. that metaphor. I think it's an accurate metaphor. I was actually going to compare this to a fever dream, a random yeah. hodgepodge of surrealistic experiences that ultimately amount to nothing. And I forget about it the next day. But that's the thing. It wasn't surreal though. No, it couldn't like even everything do that. is very familiar. Everything that exists in this movie has already been done in other movies. Mm. Um, better or worse. It doesn't matter. Other movies did it in a way that was more memorable. I feel the best way to describe this movie to someone is if you took all the highs and lows that you were talking about, James, the really big highs from other movies and really big lows, if you were to cherry pick, how do I say this? Let, let's go down a metaphorical road for a moment. Take me there. Let's say I go, let's go to the farm of film and oh. look at all these fruits. Now there's a tree. A tree represents a movie. There's all these little moments that are fun, these little cherries. I'm going to pick some of these cherries, some that are good, the biggest, ripest cherries, and then these big rotten ones, but things that are going to elicit reactions from people. Now what I'm going to do is take those cherry-picked uh, cherries and I'm going to throw them into a blender. Now I've created this hodgepodge of rotten and ripe cherries. Then what I'm going to do is introduce a ton of water to really dilute the extreme flavors until there's barely a hint of cherry. And when I create my concoction and lay it before you and you sip it, what you have isn't a delicately interwoven dense texture of multiple different cherries. What you have is essentially cherry flavored water. That's how I describe this movie. Okay. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. Everything that was extracted was extracted with little taste and with little with little creative license. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot taken from these film tropes, I guess, mm. that added to the world of Despicable Me or whatever the the universe is. Yeah. There's um a sad realization I just had. Uh-oh. 
I think I could have written this movie by myself. I think I could have done it. Dang. I think I could have. Probably like in a month, maybe, just to iron everything out, you know? Yeah. I think I could have done that. I think I'm capable of that. It was just so straightforward in so many ways. But I will, I will, give, this, I will give this thing to Minions 2 Rise of Gru. I didn't yawn until the third act. I was sufficiently entertained. My coma lasted from acts one to two. Yeah. Act three, I remembered I was watching a movie, and that is whenever I started to get bored and sleepy. Because <laughs> act three, I think, is the worst of the, the three acts. And I heard in Minions, the first one, it's, it's the same way. The third act is just like, what is going on? Most of it, yeah. The first Minions movie, the strongest one is the first act. <clears throat> but that's already in every single trailer at this point. Uh, James, when you say you could have written it on your own as a one-man army, I think you're totally right. I was very interested in the writer because I noticed in the end credits, I'm surprised I was even able to notice things at this point. Uh, yeah. Matthew Fogel is the only writer. So he helped with the story, but he is the only person that shouldered writing the script. Brian Lynch helped with the story. But Matthew Fogel's writing credits include very similar quality movies. You have the Lego Movie 2, the second part. Uh, he got his start in writing with the classic masterpiece Big Mama's Like Father, Like Son. Oh, I love that one. <laughs> he, uh, I remember that so well. Right? Whatever it is. And uh, he's currently working on the Super Mario Project with Chris Pratt as Mario. Oh, no. So, yeah, James, you're absolutely right. You could have written this on your own. And honestly, for those of you, I, I should clarify before, before I dive into this, usually the typical writing process looks like you make a rough draft, and then with me and James at least, we like to shoot it out to other writers or other creatives, and sometimes non-creatives, to get a perspective on, hey, what works, what doesn't work? Because when you're involved in writing your world and characters for so long, you tend to lose sight of what works and what doesn't because you're just so used to everything. James, I feel like you could write the script for this and not send it to anyone. And this is more or less how it would turn out. Although yeah. with you, I feel like you would actually make an effort to bury some kind of subtlety beneath all the threads and make them a bit more cohesive. So overall, debatably, I would actually push back and say, I think you could have done a slightly better job. Wow, that is flattering. <laughs> Considering the budget that was thrown behind this movie and considering the success this movie has found, you think I could write a better movie than Minions 2 in that short amount of time? Oh, that's, heck yeah. Absolutely. You know, that's very sweet. That's very <laughs> sweet. And I, I want to emphasize, listeners, that I, I'm not bashing myself in saying that I could write this movie. Yeah. I'm just saying that I have all the knowledge required and all the skills required to make this movie. Yeah. There are other movies where I've said, I could write this movie. And I mean that as an insult. In this movie, I'm just saying I simply, uh, it's, it's default movie, number two. That yeah. is what this movie is. And so you can do it. I can do it. This is the template that you open when you're about to make your first feature film. Except with yeah, instead of Laura Ipsum. <laughs> instead of Laura Ipsum, it says, uh, scene one, uh, Gru is, is, has a butt. I don't know how, how the movie opens. I can't remember the opening image. Goodness. But. I feel like kind of wrapping up our non-spoiler section. Illumination Entertainment and I have had a long, tumultuous history. 
The only time Illumination has actually tried with a movie, I believe, was Despicable Me. And I unironically enjoy the first Despicable Me movie. I don't think it's great, but I think it's good. I really think it's good. Every single movie after that, however, now that they don't need to try, is everything we don't like about Disney, but on a universal level. Uh, Universal. Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. How about that? Literally. Oh, man. That was unintentional. That was pretty good. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I thought Rio was bad in terms of milking it for sequels, but Minions and Despicable Me take it to a whole nother level. This movie is not only uh, the prequel to a trilogy, it is also the sequel to a spin-off movie in the same universe. And guess what? At the end of the day, it looks almost exactly the same as its previous products. The balance between Gru and the Minions is almost the same as the original Despicable Me movies. I want to end my thoughts in this section with a plea. For those of you that are moviegoers that fall into the casually critical demographic of people that either critically think about film or are open to it, please eat better food. Minions is candy colored. It looks good going down. It even tastes sweet. But at the end of the day, if this is all you consume, it won't be healthy for you. It won't challenge you as a writer and it's going to, it won't challenge you as a creative. And if you have kids, treat him to literally anything else, anything else. I don't think Onward is the best Pixar movie, but compared to, compared to Rise of Gru, Onward is an emotional masterpiece, a tour de force of a film. Watch that instead. Watch anything else. Watch it for free if you have a Disney Plus subscription. Exactly. Uh, and the best way, I, wrapping up my thoughts, because I could rant about Illumination forever. I tried starting a podcast before Casually Critical where I ranted about their movie of The Grinch. And it, the short story is it's bad. The Grinch is awful. But with Illumination, there is so much pandering that they do. There's so much lazy influence they try and exert over their audience. Uh, for example, Asian audiences, which they are not trying to hide pandering to at all in the story. Oh my god! Not trying to hide that. They're just like, you know what? Straight up, this one's for you guys. Uh, there's pandering. There's unnecessary throwback music that just seems to be in there to be in there. And then there's butts. Because when you're appealing... How many butts? Can we get a butt count real quick, Daniel? How many butts were in Minions 2 Rise of Gru? See, that just puts me in a bind. Because if I say no, that implies I wasn't paying attention to everything in the movie. And if I say yes, that means I have an unhealthy fascination with butts. It doesn't. It really doesn't. I just want to know how many butts there were. Too many. Okay. That's all I... I mean... I feel like I, I do feel like internally I do have a clock that watches for that. So every time <laughs> there was a scene where someone a minion's pants fall off and then, you know, it, their their bare bottom is exposed, I I just like, ah, yep. The rite of passage for illumination. It it finally happened. Yep. I didn't know I was are. waiting for it, but I guess I was, and it happened. So, yep. Anyway. I don't like Illumination. We're going to get more into why in our spoiler view. James, are there any final thoughts that you have? Banana! Want to join the conversation? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. 
feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. There's a few ways that you can burn trash. One way is by straight up dumping kerosene into the dumpster and then just lighting it up. Another is to spray a ton of scent blocking chemicals, insert company name here because I can't remember them off the top of my head, but spray that everywhere and then burn it so at least no one will smell the fire burning, the dumpster fire that you've created. And with this movie, the symptoms of laziness that we briefly hinted at in our non-spoiler review are just as evident because the despicable me, the despicable me lore that exists <laughs> is so simple. This isn't Star Wars. This isn't decades of fan stories and filling in the gaps. This is, these are five movies, some video games, maybe some books, and that's about it. And the little that they do, they can't even get that right. And one thing that bothered me is uh, Gru's motivation. This is a small thing, and this is one of those things that people might say, oh, Daniel, come on, it's a kid's film, which we've already discussed that. I'm not going to rant about that anymore. But the scene with Gru at the very beginning, he's in the classroom. The teacher's asking everyone, what do you want to do? All right, what do you want to do? A teacher? No, you don't. What do you want to do? And I'm like, first off, teachers aren't like that. Most teachers, every teacher takes that job, mostly for a reason. Uh, but Daniel, it's so funny because teachers are burnouts. <laughs> sure. Get it? It's a joke because teachers are always tired. <laughs> That's the joke. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that was funny, James. That, was, that made me feel humor. So she gets to Gru, and she's like, what do you want to be when you grew up, Gru? And before he answered, I flashed back to the first Despicable Me. And what they do so well with Gru in the first Despicable Me, I can't believe I'm defending Despicable Me. What they do so well with him is there's this undercurrent of, okay, he's a bad guy. He wants all this attention. He wants to get the moon. But why? And the answer that the movie never even blatantly says they just show us is his mom. His mom is neglectful. His mom doesn't give a crap about him. Every time he tries to impress her with his inventions, with his prototypes of a rocket, she goes, eh, eh, eh. And this moon heist that he's planning is one that, yes, will get him infamy amongst villains yes it'll get him fame but deep down he really wants his mom to approve of him and why is this all important why even bother stealing the moon why is building a rocket ship and going there so important to him because in his childhood which we do have flashbacks to it's shown that he's always wanted to be an astronaut he always wanted to go to the moon it was his dream and by him shrinking the moon and stealing it it's a metaphor for him basically saying, I'm going to seize the dream even if I have to do an insane thing to get to it, even if I have to become bad, even if I have to build my rocket or finance myself from scratch. I can't believe I just defended all that, but despicably does it so well. This movie that took this small lore, this very simple concept, 
couldn't even get that right. They said, nope, he doesn't want to be an astronaut. He wants to be a supervillain. That's always been his dream because he's a bad guy. With that out of the way, Daniel, I want to know, <laughs> what was your dream as a kid? I wanted to make movies. That's sweet. See? Now imagine if we made a documentary about Daniel, the famous movie maker. And uh, it starts with him telling the camera, I always wanted to be a fireman. <laughs> but life had different plans. <laughs> yeah, it the retcon they do with Gru, I don't even think it was intentional. I just think it was a bunch of, I think whatever creative process they have at Illumination is lazy. Because they read the script and they're like, eh, sure, whatever. It's like someone watched all the Despicable Me movies sat on it for six months, and then wrote the script out for it. Like, that's a huge part of the first movie, but it's the first movie. People might forget. Daniel, it's just a kid's movie. No one cares. Story is story. And if you want adults coming back and watching it, like the 1994 Lion King movie. I can't believe I had to say that. I should just say the Lion King movie, or better yet, the good Lion King movie. What? There's only one Lion King movie. What do you mean? Oh, to live in the world that you do, James. To live in that world. Adults keep coming back to it. Story analysts, moviegoers, they keep coming back to it because it's iconic, because the story works, and they took time to dial it in and make sure it was great, that the characters could connect, that the themes were powerful. And Minions 2, there is so much neglect when it comes to the finer craftsmanship. It's like a cheap knockoff of a thing that you liked and you don't remember that thing that you liked and you're like, well, this is cheaper. And then you realize, oh, this is nothing like the thing. It doesn't work. It's not reliable. There's no craft put into this. This is why. Like, There's another, um, they, do, they do a lot of cameos in this movie. A lot of characters from the older Despicable Me movies, especially the first one. Will Arnett playing the banker, the big banker guy. Then you have, uh, I think his name's William, William Ramsbottom. Again, I'm really ashamed I know this much about the Despicable Me universe, but here we are scraping Honestly, the Daniel, barrel. I'm proud. I'm proud that you know this much about the villain pretend prevention guys. The, the AVL, the uh, anti-villain league. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's so cool. I mean, the nuance... <laughs> Um, between between the <laughs> villains me. and the AVL, uh huh. There's there's a lot of complexity there, and you keeping it all together right now, and like not going down the rabbit holes of lore that are <laughs> that are just waiting for us to crack open right now. It's a lot of restraint. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Not as much restraint as you getting to finish that sentence. But anyway, Ramsbottom, he's funny, right? Like he's got the name Bottom in his name. Okay, yeah. That, so, that that's was pretty cool. That was literally the first joke and only joke that was made about his name in Despicable Me 2. He appears at the very end briefly after they fight the the vicious six and uh they have the mystical Asian metal medallion thing. Uh Asia's a uh, continent, right? It's not a series of different countries with their diverse culture. Asia. Yeah, Asia is just Asia's just um Asia is on par with like King Arthur yeah. in um in this movie. I just want to say up front, like 
it's sad. It it makes me it it upsets me deeply. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh William Ramsbottom appears at the very end and he kind of I don't know, he looks at Gru and the, obviously the writers can't help themselves, so there's a brief line he has where he's like, "Don't get into any trouble now." Something like that, but Gru smiles cuz we all know that he's going to go on to be an adult supervillain. Later he's going to meet William Ramsbottom, but here's the thing. They have such a personal interaction and Gru, as established in this movie, never changes the way he dresses. He always wears the same scarf, the same coat. Why would William Ramsbottom not know who he is? Why Why would Gru not know who William Ramsbottom is? Yeah. Gru, in the first opening, in the, excuse me, in the opening of this movie, Gru recognizes the AVL. He's like, oh, the anti-villain league or whatever. Like, you would know this man. And it, Anyway, some cameos don't need to be in movies. Don't help yourself. Make a good story first. One thing that Marvel is struggling to realize is now we go to watch Marvel movies for the cameos. There was a, in the new She-Hulk trailer, if you don't want to see the trailer, spoilers, I guess, but Daredevil makes an appearance at the end of the trailer, and everyone's super excited now because Daredevil's returning in She-Hulk, and I'm like, why can't we just want to see She-Hulk for the story? Why do we have to want to see it for another character we already care about? This is a cannibalistic cycle. When you have a character that's lackluster and you compensate for it by adding cameos of characters that we somehow care about, it, 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 it takes attention away from what we should be focusing on. Gosh, dang it. Maybe Daniel, what should we be focusing on in the minions to rise of Gru movie? What should we be focusing on? We need to focus on making a better movie. We need to focus on not being Daniel, so complacent. Daniel, Despicable Me 1 was made 10, 12 years ago. Oh. Which child watching this movie is going to remember the canon of Despicable Me? None of them. How many children asked for Minions 2 Rise of Gru? None of them. Who went and saw them anyway? All of them. Because it doesn't matter if they like the movie, if they enjoy the movie. If they forget the movie, if they remember the movie, everyone's going to go see it anyway. Why? I'm, I'm struggling to understand why. Is the brand really that strong? Is it? I don't. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter how strong the brand is. The thing I've noticed about Illumination Entertainment, which, by the way, I believe this is the first of their movies we've ever reviewed in Casually Critical. Uh thing about Illumination Entertainment is when a movie theirs is coming out, everyone knows it. There's marketing for it. There's uh, all this stuff. Uh, they do some stuff that's kind of edgy for the adults, but also kind of playful for the kids because it's everywhere. For the Grinch, they showed Benedict Cumberbatch's Grinch kind of smirking, and he was attached to a pistachio stand, and it said, taste my green salty nuts. Like, that's Illumination, Right. Because you're like, oh, yeah. that's dirty. That's kind of, oh, that's, I can't believe. And on social media, of course. I'm going to go take my daughter to see this movie. Right. And, it, and then you see on social media, as I did, people sharing that photo and saying, like, I can't believe they actually let them do this. Or I can't believe they got away with this. And I'm like, you guys are marketing the movie for them. <laughs> of the budget for Illuminations films, I would not be surprised if a disproportionate amount went to the marketing because it is everywhere. YouTube, television, streaming. I don't know about streaming, actually. But like 
everywhere you go, billboards, posters, just they market the heck out of everything they do. And they, ex- they take their story concept, exploit it down into simple visuals, and then that's how they market it. Oh, Dr. Seuss, Grinch, we all like the Grinch. We all know the story. Great. Here's the new one. Here's the new reboot. Go see the Grinch this Christmas. It's fun for the whole family. Hey, shout out to Illumination's marketing team because they're, the, they're holding this butt-shaped uh, machine together. <laughs> I got to say, uh, there's no other reason this thing should be doing the things that it's doing. But this machine is chugging along, and apparently it's not in any trouble anytime soon of sinking. It's just going to keep chugging along until the world ends or until you and I um, do something drastic and maybe uh, start a, a violent letter-writing campaign where we call them stinky, mean names, mm. and then maybe they'll stop doing what they're doing. What do you think? Sure. Okay. I don't really have the ability to carry this topic, James, but I want to bring it up because we were talking about Asian pandering, pandering to Asia. Yeah. The reason why, and I think specifically they're trying to pander to China because China is a huge market. One-sixth of the world's population is residing there. Movies always make it big, so there's been, especially in Hollywood, uh, a growing trend of uh, pandering to Chinese audiences to get them to see it. Right. And this movie does The Great does Wall, Shang-Chi, yeah. Kung Fu Panda. I'm not one that has enough knowledge to really discuss cultural representation, but the little I know, I'll share. Uh, Turning Red had an interesting uh, topic that was circumventing the internet a little bit when the trailer came out because we saw this, uh, this young woman in this, uh, this I think, Korean-inspired household. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. Uh, apologies, this, whatever. Uh, but there's, you know, these mystical red panda spirits and in the trailers, sure enough, she has this curse slash blessing in her family as well. And she needs to learn to control it. And some people were worried because the token Asian stereotype is this wise old sage who's very spiritual and supernatural and weird. No one really understands their ways, but all we know is they're a badass and they, they kick butt. And they always know the perfect thing to say, but the hero may not catch it. They're good at Kung Fu and they're good with like all sorts of things. And you see this even in movies that are considered great, like the karate kid movie back in the day. Um, But here I see it again. I just think to myself, and again, our current year 2022 has some issues with it. So for me to say this is substantial, but I think to myself, Okay, for 2022, we still have this. We have this old Asian woman who's good at Kung Fu and can heal people and has these superpowers and knows the wise things to say. We're really going to simplify Asian stereotypes and just copy-paste? I-, I think the more American equivalent that we could, we could fit into this is if Illumination Entertainment put in a wise old black woman that's good at cooking and giving advice Mm. uh and uh has this like big rich laughter and always says such uh such wise and mysterious things and she maybe narrates the story it's like the same level of like the stereotype right of like what's the stereotypical black character what's the stereotypical asian character it's this this kung fu instructor woman that's in this movie she has an acupuncture parlor she lives in Chinatown. Yeah. She's 
she's an old Asian woman and she teaches karate yeah. to the minions. And it's weird because I've actually been, since I live near it, uh, at the time of this recording, I live near the Bay Area and I have gotten to walk through Chinatown in San Francisco. And it's very touristy. A lot of tourists there. It's not all Asians. Um, but on top of all that, they do sell souvenirs you can buy. Token Chinese artifacts or, you know, replicas, facsimiles, if you will. Uh, it's really, part of it may be by necessity, but it does pander to tourists. It's not like, oh, look, it's an actual slice of Chinese life and living right here in the United States. Like, no, it's an Americanized, it's an Americanized version. Uh, they don't do that in the Minions. They just simplify it. They're just like, oh, Asian people live here. Then this one wise Asian woman. And I was thinking, as she saw the Minions getting beat up, I was like, I wonder if she knows Kung Fu. And sure enough, she knows Kung Fu. Not Wing Chun, not Karate, not Taekwondo, uh, not even kickboxing. Just, yeah, Kung Fu. Let's do it. The, the most, the most recognizable, stereotypical Asian martial yeah. arts. And you know what? Kung Fu Panda started a conversation. We talked about this in our Kung Fu Panda episode. Kung Fu Panda caused Chinese filmmakers to go, how the heck can America make a Chinese cultural film that acknowledges and respects Chinese culture and make it palatable for American audiences while still being true to it? They were like, how do they do this so right? All the characters in there, Tigress, Mantis, Monkey, those are named after specific forms of Kung Fu. So, yes, they chose the most recognizably Asian, like, ah, she knows Kung Fu, they don't even go into like, oh, she knows the tiger form of Kung Fu or the mantis form or the monkey form. Nope. Just You know what she does say, though? What? Dig deep and find your inner animal. <laughs> crack, open a, uh, crack open a fortune cookie for me, Daniel, at the next restaurant you go to, <laughs> and it's going to say that on it. It's going to say that. It's going to say, Minions 2 Rise of Gru, unleash your inner animal. Eat this piece of sugar cookie. Do it. And I, I don't know. I, I feel like people may ask me, Daniel, well, you're talking about all this. Couldn't you do it better? How would you write this scene for Minions 2? And I would say, if it was up to me, I don't think the problem is how the scene was done or the character. I think the problem was how do we even get here in the first place? No, why does it exist? Why does that's, this exist? That's the question I would ask. Right. Why is this here at all? Yeah. It's to fill time. So whenever your foundation for a movie is to exist. I can't justify anything that comes to follow because the foundation, there's no premise. The premise of this movie is Gru wants to be a villain. And um, what are the themes underlying that? There's nothing. There's nothing there. As a result, I can't say, well, this is what we should do with the Kung Fu scene because it would tie in with the lessons that Gru is learning and the minions could help teach him that. I couldn't say that because there's nothing Gru is trying to learn. It, it was a Gru movie and then he gets kidnapped and then it becomes a Minions sequel. And the thing that aggravates me to your point, James, that you were just talking about, Gru is so shallow and it's a kid's movie where the intention is for it to be marketed for kids. So I'm not saying they should have gone dark with it. However, for a guy, for a kid that wants to be an evil villain, Gru is not menacing. He does not have that villainous presence. Really, none of the villains do. They're kind of these, like, they're either jocks, like, yeah, get in, or they're like, hand over the 
artifact grew. You know, like what's her face? I don't even know her name. I don't know any of their names. I don't care. Stereotypical funk character. Yes. For the sake of, hey, remember, remember funk? Yeah. Remember Soul Train? She is the most, she is a mustache twirling villain. The only thing that's creative is she doesn't have a mustache to twirl. But if she did, by Jove, she would twirl it. And I don't know. I found her to be the most menacing character, even though she is the most stereotypical villain. Because she was at least consistent. She always ran after Gru. She was always menacing. She was never like, oh, but this is a kid. Should I be killing a kid? She's like, nope, I'm going to take him down. Because I'm a villain. One of my favorite characters that they could have done stuff with, but they didn't, was Wild Knuckles. Stupid name, but... Man, the potential. This old villain who gets backstabbed and starts to see the face of true villainy. And he goes, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore. And at the very least, I'm not saying they should have had the ending they did, which was stupid. But at least planting the seeds in Gru's mind that would later in the first Despicable Me movie fully take form. You know? Giving more... Daniel, I think... More subtext, you know? Instead of overtly saying he learned a lesson. That's the first, I think, profound thought we've had (laughs) in this review. I think that's really good. I think that that is absolutely what what could have been a great like. Like, can we chop the Rams bottom scene and just have the scene where Wild Knuckles is like, sure, kid, I'll teach you to be a villain, but it's not everything is cracked up to be. And Gru's like. Oh, I don't think so. And he's just like, ah, I'm still determined to be a villain. But Wild Knuckles is like, yeah, he's saying there's it's lonely and it's not there's not yeah. anything substantial to it. I like that. Yeah, there's a scene towards the end. Again, terrible timing, really terrible pacing. But his minions go after the minions or <laughs> Wild Knuckles henchmen go after the minions in Chinatown. Chinatown, they get their butts handed to them. <laughs> butts by Michelle Yeoh. She she beats them all up. They run back and then they just quit. They're like, okay, screw you, Wild Knuckles. We're done. And they leave. And Gru and Wild Knuckles, after his henchmen diss him and he has Gru do the chores, we diddly-daddly, they come back to his house, which has been ripped apart by his ex-villain group. And for some reason, they choose this to be the time. But as he sits in the ashes and the debris of his home, his regal, once grand house, which if you're trying to fake your death, don't live in the same house you've always lived in. But anyway. And don't live in a house that has your initials like as right. part of the structure of the house. <laughs> also, don't do that. Consider but it. The, he, of the ashes, he takes out a photo of him and the villains, an article about them, and he just reminisces. And... There's tonal backlash to that, which is this movie has so much of it. But I was like, oh, we're doing this now? But then I was like, oh, shoot. Like, there's actual depth here that they're starting to scratch at. I was like, oh, okay. There's a lot here for him to unpack. And then he's like, no, I will be a villain anyway. And then he just storms off. And then Gru's kind of alone on the trolley. I'm like, okay, this is a perfect moment. For Gru to kind of reflect on himself. Oh, there's Otto. He's got the artifact. He's on a dragon in the parade of Chinese New Year. Otto, we can still be bad guys. Come back. I'm like, like, if we flash the bright lights enough, <laughs> no one will know that this is a bad story. Right. Where it's like, 
And can we also point out this thing with Wild Knuckles, what they do is they we see him burned alive by a dragon. <clears throat> Not a comforting <laughs> experience. Then, oh, he's fine. He's actually alive. He's talking, and his face looks relatively, just some burn marks on it. But he's not doing so hot. And then Gru starts worrying about him. He says, no, don't worry, kid. I'll see you soon. Something tells me sooner than you think. And he, he's wheeled away in an ambulance. But he's coherent. He's talking. He didn't lose consciousness. He's fine. Then we cut to his funeral. I'm like, um, <clears throat> wow. Okay. Um, oh, okay. So he's dead. Well, that was a lame wait. Oh, no. <laughs> he faked his death. Get it? Because he didn't just like break out of the AVL prison. He just, he just, okay. It, just like he's dead now. He's fine. He's actually dead. He's back. And I'm like, what? What? Ah! <laughs> Grow some testicles, Matthew Vogel. J learn, go back to writing school. Daniel. Matthew, what he's been doing has been working for the last 12 years. Why would he need to do anything different? <laughs> Tell me. Give me a reason. Give me a reason why this guy would ever push himself or his audience out of their comfort zone. It's safe. We're making money. We're providing for our family. It's, it's great. It's great. What's art, though? I don't know. As we're existentializing about why we even bother making things in the first place. As a plea to you moviegoers, one thing that this movie does do consistently is whenever things get negative, when there's some bad feelings that we need to sit in for a little bit longer, the movie always deviates to something funny. And it's usually in the form of a minion, always. Even if it sacrifices consistency, logic, story structure, world building, doesn't matter. All that stuff can go out the window. Uh, let's not stay negative. Let's let's quickly turn away. Let's go positive. Disney, I don't think they're, I won't go so far as to say they're borrowing from Illumination, but they're starting to develop a similar shorthand, a creative shorthand, where it's like, oh, we got Olaf. <laughs> we got the funny animal sidekick. Ha ha hoo hoo hee hee. Let's have some self-awareness because we're Disney, right? We have our shtick. We're going to play a lot. No, we're not. And it's this evasion of negativity this evasion of craftsmanship, this, let me start that over, this compromise of craftsmanship is what bothers me because I don't see many people having these disagreements that we have. I see many people just saying, what, it's harmless. This is a harmless movie. I'm like, you don't understand. This movie is telling you in the subtext, it's okay not to think when you see a movie. It's okay to just mindlessly absorb because it's all movies are. And I'll be honest with you, I'm that way with sports. I'll turn a sports game on. I don't do that. But if a sports game is on, I'm not going to pay attention. You know, Could be muted, could be blasting. I don't really care what's going on on the screen. But with sports, story matters. Someone told me, if you want to get into sports, don't, get, don't root for a team, root for a player. And what sports has been doing is they've been leaning into that. It's like, okay, yeah, have you heard about Kevin Durant? Have you heard about LeBron James? How about Shaquille O'Neal? You know, here's how they got their start. Here's how they rose to the top. Here's their career. 
here's how they were an optimistic college athlete hopeful that this team picked up, took a chance on, or that this coach nurtured and mentored. Even in the world of sports, story is permeating the atmosphere. And with movies, it's no different. Stories can shape us. It's a matter of what story shapes you. And this is not a story that's worth shaping you. And I am so upset by that. I don't know if I'm upset, Daniel. I think I'm more lethargic. Mm. I think uh, the machine has kind of just, the butt-shaped machine, that is, <laughs> has kind of just run me over and said, what are you going to do about it? You have billions of dollars, and uh, I can write this script overnight, and uh, that's the end of the story, man. That's filmmaking at the end of the day. It's making people happy. And I'm just like, okay, if that's what you think filmmaking is, I'm just going to say it. That's not what I think filmmaking is. And it's okay for people to disagree. If you think this movie is entertaining, that's great. I personally like to be aware of the things that are molding me into the person that I'm becoming. I like to be aware of the narratives that are influencing my being. Because no matter, like, you can't escape it. We're, we're going to be formed by that, no matter what. And that's something we've been harping on quite often. Yeah. But if you really do think this is a harmless piece of material, I would say you're right. It is harmless. And that's exactly what's harmful about it. Mm. It doesn't step on any toes. It doesn't impose anything. It doesn't ask anything of its audience. It doesn't say anything. So it's harmless. And if everything that we absorb is harmless, then we're never going to change. We're never going to be moved in any direction. And to that I say, banana. Well, we're Daniel and James. You've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. And I'm too lazy to think of an ending, so here you go. (laughs)